This is the Good Judge Men Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell, and together we will be your hosts. The Good Judgment Podcast is designed for judges, lawyers, and others who are interested in judges and the law and procedure that occurs in a courtroom. Now, our focus is on Georgia law and Georgia judges. We normally address issues dealing with substantive law and procedure, but occasionally we have some other topics that we think might be of interest for judges to consider. For those who have been listening to our podcast, we want to thank you and hope that you'll tell somebody else. And don't forget, folks, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the uh, web at goodjudgepod.com. Hello, folks. This is Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Welcome back to our series of episodes dealing with how to try a criminal case from beginning to end. We are now to section four. We've got a jury in the box. We've selected them. We've waived Batson and McCullum challenges. And we are ready to start instructions to the jury, the, the trial oath, which is unique to criminal cases. And we are going to try this case. So I told you earlier that we have several oaths. The last oath is here. And it is the oath that you are to require to give to the jury as we finish the last episode, we will remind you here, this is when double jeopardy attaches. Only after this would you ever grant a mistrial. Until then, there is no reason to grant a mistrial. The story you told was great, that, that until now, there is no mistrial to be granted. It's not a trial. It's just a continuance if it needs to be put off or if we've had a problem with jury selection, et cetera. That's right. But the swearing of the jury is one of those magic moments in a trial where something significant, constitutional, and legal happens. That's exactly right. So I go through usually the rule of sequestration if that is an issue, and we, we provide the jurors notepads and we talk about that. But there is one place that we differ. And we probably need to have this conversation because I think I differ from colleagues on my own bench. And that is with jurors and cell phones. Oh, yeah. So I tell the jurors and I tell the bailiffs, I don't want them strip search, but I don't want the jurors to have cell phones during the jury trial. Now, I will tell you that we had this conversation among the eight of us in Augusta. And one of my colleagues said, well, I would want my I would want to know, you know, if, if, my, if something happened with my child, I would want to know well, what are you going to do? You're going to release them? You're going to let them answer the phone during the jury trial? You're going to, I mean, they can't respond during the trial. So why would you let them know there's an issue? I guess I'm old school enough to remember. Rotary phones? Well, yeah, that too. And the fact that at some point, somebody else can handle that. And if it's really an emergency, somebody who needs to talk to you knows you have jury duty. And they can contact my office, the clerk's office. They can contact the sheriff's office, for God's sake. And we can get word to whoever needs words. But I guess my point being, I have seen so many cases reversed because people did legal research on cell phones and on tablets during the jury process. And they looked up words and, and phrases and they use google earth to see if it how close this house was to this road but and wait you're gonna let them go home at night right absolutely and and what if they do that same research on their home computer or phone at night they don't share it with their fellow jurors 
Oh, yes. that's my. Oh, yes, they do. Well, I mean, that's my argument. <laughs> anyway, anyway, Wade and I differ on that. But one thing I will say that Wade just reminded me of, just a little tip, uh, especially for anybody who's a new judge. At the beginning of every trial, as soon as I swear in those jurors, one of the first things the bailiff gives them all is a card for my assistant, uh, Ms. Bloodworth, who is my assistant. Uh, she's so an that, angel. She's amazing. Um, so that if they have an emergency that does come up during the trial, or if they, you know, their car breaks down on the way to court or whatever, they have a direct number that they can contact to at least leave a message and tell us what's going on with them. And I think it's really helpful for that. But yeah, Wade and I differ about this cell phone thing. And now, but you don't let them have their cell phone when they deliberate? That's right. What we do is I let them keep their cell phones throughout trial with an instruction about why it's important that they not do any research or look anything up uh, during the course of the trial because that it affects the integrity of the process and that they need to decide the case based on the evidence that's presented in the courtroom and not something they've done on their own. But I let them, and I say, part of that is an agreement between you and me that you're going to conduct yourselves appropriately. And as a, in exchange for that, I let you keep your cell phones until the time of jury deliberation. I do it, quite frankly, so that during breaks, they can use their cell phone to, I don't even think there's a payphone in the courthouse. I don't know that anybody even knows what a payphone is anymore. So during breaks, they can check with the officer at home and just make sure everything's okay and that there's not an emergency. And it seems to make them happy. But I get what you're saying, and I understand why you do what you do. And, and quite frankly, it's one of those areas where you get to be the judge. You remember I told you we went to the Bruno Mars concert in Las Vegas? I do. I remember you talking about you dancing in the aisles. I had a great time. And it was a great show. The thing that they required as they let people in is they took your cell phone and they put it in a bag and they put it in one of those anti-theft little things that you have to have a special magnet and wrench to open. And then they let you hold your, your phone, but it, you could just feel it vibrating sometimes, but you couldn't do anything with it. I'm figuring if Bruno Mars can take your phone, I should take your phone. And because it does make you pay attention. In all candor, he is super talented. <laughs> he is. And I don't know <laughs> what you're trying to imply with the rest of that. Nothing. Do you do preliminary instructions? I do. Um, I give a preliminary instruction to the jury uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I want them to know what's coming what to expect. Uh, number two, I also want to give them just a little bit of an idea about, okay, here's what burden of proof is. Here's, you know, here's what your job as a juror is in weighing the evidence. Um, and so I give a preliminary instruction that, uh, that, that tells them that. One thing I want to go back and say too, though, from the very beginning of even the voir dire process, I tell the jury how long they can expect to be there. I think that's really critical because the anxiety that a lot of jurors come in, ha, come into the courtroom with or potential jurors come in with is not what will be required of me as a juror. It's how long am I going to be here? Is it six weeks? Am I am I on the OJ jury? Uh, you know what? And I think if you say we anticipate that this trial is going to be concluded by the end of the day on Friday, then you see a visible sign of relief that everybody's like, okay, well I've I've planned for the week. I'm good. Anyway, I do that a little bit differently, and I and I do it too, and for the same reason, but I do it a little bit differently. What I do is I tell people. This case is not to ex not expected to extend beyond one week because I worry that if I tell them two days, 
you know they're going to make plans for day three. Oh, I do the same. I, I, I always overestimate. If the lawyers told me it was a three-day case, I'll say we'll be done by late Friday afternoon, which yeah. is five days later. We'll be done by the end of this week. Yes. That's all I'm trying to do yep. and because I don't want to give them false hopes and, I agree. Make, and exacerbate the problem. No juror has ever been upset that I let them out early. So let's um, let's let's talk about this in general. We're not going to go through the preliminary instructions, but everybody has to understand that giving the preliminary instructions does not excuse you from anything that you are required to do in the final instructions. Right. If you miss giving the instruction on burden of proof at the conclusion of the case, which as crazy as that sounds, somebody might in the past have done that. I don't know anybody who would, but somebody might have. Um, that doesn't save you. Why are you looking at me? I'm not, man. I'm not. So I did, and 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 in full fairness, I do written jury instructions, and I had a staff attorney who oh, deleted it's a staff attorney's fault. And it's always my fault. I mean, it's ultimate responsibility is mine, but they deleted a a charge that should not have been deleted after jury charge conference, and nobody picked up on it. In all fairness, not a lawyer, not the judge, not the staff attorney, not the court reporter, nobody picked up on it until the motion for new trial that I had to grant, which was pretty embarrassing. But anyway, we go through the preliminary instructions. I give them, Tane gives them, but there are some people who do not. And I understand that too, because it doesn't really save anything other than I think it does give some framework from where we're going. But then the parties can be can give their opening statements. Now, Tane, I don't know how often this happens. I know you know this, but I don't know how often it happens. The defense has the right to delay their opening until the time that evidence is to be presented. Yes. And or after the state presents their evidence. And, and I actually start in the preliminary statement preparing the jury, if, you, if that's what you want to call it, for the fact that the defense doesn't have to do everything that the state does. And so there's a mention in my preliminary statement that the defense – can give an opening statement or may defer its opening statement. And I've had that happen in a trial uh, once or twice over 12 years. And I'd probably say it's probably happened once or twice. One other thing about opening statements, Wade, uh, that I do think is important is opening statements and, and closing arguments are different. I mean, that's why they call them statements versus arguments. And, and that is that um, the case law uh, specifically says that the opening statement is supposed to just be uh, a recitation of what the facts are going to show in the case and what is expected to be proven by the state and alleged and, and perhaps proven uh, on the defense side if they intend to call witnesses to present that. Um, I think that's important because frequently we'll get an objection during opening statement um, that, oh, judge, they're arguing the case. And Technically, that is a an objection that should be sustained. Now, I give lawyers some leeway during that, but uh, uh, it, it is supposed to be a, a factual recitation uh, about what the what the facts and the evidence are going to prove. Remember that what the lawyers say is not evidence; it's never evidence. So, if they say something improper in opening, don't 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 go finding your mistrial law. Um, but also, if they say something that is absolutely the bell cannot be unrung and they're going to imply something that they should not have implied that's subject to an objection and into whatever uh, corrective action you think would be appropriate. That's right. Folks, that is the end of episode four. We've now gotten through our opening statements and we're about to start the presentation of evidence. So I'm Wade Padgett. 
And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Without them, we really could not do this. And thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit some of our stupidity and awkwardness. Hey, but nobody can get it all. That's a good point. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allowed us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. And thanks to our NGAO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else with an acronym or alphabet name. Or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com if you have any praise. And contact someone else with any of your complaints. (laughs) But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send those comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcast. Once again, I am Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell, and thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap this session up? No, let's just turn it over to the studio audience, and the crowd goes wild. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.